Hey, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's Wednesday, June 8th, and on Wednesdays, we like to talk about faith and the role that faith has in our lives, the role that faith has in our politics and our civic life and all. Today, we're going to talk specifically about that. What's the role of religion? How should it influence our politics? Not a simple question, I'll tell you, friends, um, to, to answer. It's one that... Um, our society has been struggling with for a very long time. How do we handle our religion? How do we incorporate it into our civic life and give space for all people with different religions and non-religion and all to engage? And it's also a difficult question for a lot of us who are just thinking about our own lives. Like what's the role of religion for us? So we're gonna talk about that today. I'm Doug Paget out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I've had COVID for the last week, by the way. So oh, no. uh, yeah, yeah, you know, Fine, I'm, I'm gotcha. a late. I'm a late bloomer. You know, I, I joke, I've taken COVID very seriously and think it's a really big deal. And like the way the Biden administration has responded to it, did not like the way the Trump administration engaged it, all those, all those things. But if someone looked at my life, you might think I was a COVID denier, the way I traveled around the country and did all kinds <laughs> of things. And, you know, uh, we traveled for, for this work. We travel, I traveled for advocacy things, for personal vacation, like just did a lot in the last two years. And Never contracted the virus until, um, well, last Thursday, last Friday, I, I tested positive. Curiously, Dan, right here talking with you last Wednesday when we were on with, with Padraig, I uh, started feeling it like in my shoulders uh. and I was like, wow, wow. And then I kind of laid low, stayed away from people. Then on Thursday, I took a test, negative. Thought, oh, oh all right. You're off the hook. Then Friday, I was driving in my vehicle, my car. My eyes were so heavy and tired. I just thought I would, I need to pull over. I mean, it's like the middle of the day. Uh, so, and then my nose was really uh, feeling it. And I got another test and took it. And um, you're supposed to wait 15 minutes for the results. And mine in less than 45 seconds. <laughs> and I took another test this morning, feeling much better today. Um, took another test this morning and... Uh, a minute 45 seconds there was the there was the line so mm. i am still uh, contagious at least by the by, by the test so hanging around home but anyway uh weathering this uh virus a late bloomer in getting it to those of you who've already had it yeah you're right it's really bad um currently my wife is uh she came out with symptoms two days ago mm, and shoot. is just in the barrel right now. It's just really, really sad. But outdoors, it's lovely. I mean, it's a beautiful June 8th summer day here in here in Minneapolis. Uh, how, how are things there in South Bend, Indiana? Uh, it's great. It's a beautiful day. We had my son's birthday party yesterday. He's turning wow. 11, so that was fun. And beautiful weather for it. Like perfect early summer, not oppressively hot day. Just so good. Well, uh, all right, let's talk here about, about religion and, and the role of religion. Now, I just want to say a couple of things here at the start. I, I think about this stuff a lot, have thought about it a, a lot since uh, 1983 is when I got into Christianity. I wasn't raised in a religious family or anything, but I um, have thought about religion and what its function is supposed to be in my life, in the world, really seriously. Like I studied it in college. I became an anthropology uh, major in college because I wanted to think about the impact of religion. I went off and got a master's degree in theology. I've spent my life working in the Christian spaces. I come from the evangelical tradition. That Those are the people that welcomed me into Christianity in my early days. And I'm on the progressive side of that, of that tradition. Uh, I've started churches. I write books about public theology. I run an advocacy group, Vote Common Good, that wants to engage faith voters. I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. 
I like it. I find it interesting. I like the role of Christian religion. I like the role of other religions. I find them all intriguing personally and and quite interesting. I am befuddled by the power of religion in people's lives. I am stunned that religion in America can still have the power that it has. Like I am shocked with all the history that there's been of abuse from the Catholic traditions through the Protestant traditions that anybody tolerates religion in this country any longer. But not only do we tolerate it, it carries as much power now as seemingly it ever has. Even though a lot of people want to suggest that, you know, the the power of religion is waning. Uh, I think it's shifting. I'm not sure it's totally waning. We can have that conversation as we go. So all that to say, I think a lot about it. I no longer uh, like to make a distinction between religion and spirituality. I know for some people that's super important. Don't want to yuck anyone's yum on that. Don't want to, <laughs> you know, uh, COVID anyone's parade. I'm just saying, I, I think the difference is might be very personal for someone where they might say, I, religion used to feel like an external force on my life and spirituality is that thing that comes up from within me. Totally get that. One is more intimate and more personal. Religion can feel more external and out of your control and something that, that is forced upon you totally get all that. For this conversation, I'm not sure it makes any difference of the difference between religion and spirituality. However you take that sense of your spiritual religious identity in the world, how does what's the purpose of it in life and what's its function in, in, uh, in our society? Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to make a whole lot of distinctions between those two. I think it's uh, powerful for a lot of people, as I said. I also think it's a cop-out for some people <laughs> where they'll just say, well, religion is bad. Yeah, but I'm into spirituality. And then, then they just move I'm on. spiritual, you know? not religious. Yeah, I've heard that. Yes. I probably and even I said it. it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, get, I think I am more spiritual than religious in that sense too, um, meaning I don't really identify with an external force that tells me what I'm supposed to do and think and believe. I'm willing to walk away from some of the more consistent teachings of the tradition that I'm in because I think that they don't match the faith that I hold, all those things. Yep. Important for individual work. I, I'm just going to clump it all together for the purpose of our conversation today. So what's the role of spirituality in our politics today? What's the role of religion? What's the role of faith? I'm going to use those interchangeably, in, at least in the comments that I'm, that, that I'm making today. So, okay, here we go. Uh, how does one, th how could one, how does one, and I'd like to suggest a few ways that we ought to think about about religion. I've been very enthralled with this recent idea, uh, an idea that's recent to me, not at all recent. Um, I actually remember hearing it way back in my anthropology class in 1985 in college, but I hadn't thought a lot about it. And I've recently reacquainted myself with this notion that religion, faith, spiritual, thinking of them as a technology, as a human technology designed to function in our society is an interesting way to think about these, these issues. In other words, by technology, I don't mean just computer technology or information technology. I mean, a system designed by human beings in order to carry meaning, give people an understanding, tell a story and carry a story with us through society. So I think that there's a way to think about religion as one of the great human technologies that allows us to engage with one another, engage with the big questions of the world, have containers for them to be to be involved in. There's a lot of other technology, similar sort of 
social psychological technologies. Science is one of those. Uh, other myth narratives are entertainment and sports. Like there's a lot of technologies that we can use and religion is one of them. So thinking about religion in that sense, like what is its function and its role in the world? It's a really interesting way to engage. I think what's going on in our society is we actually have a competition between technologies, right? And so some people who are using religion as a primary organizing principle for how they view the world, how they understand themselves in it, what's going on in the world, how they ought to act, where they find their morals. Sometimes they'll run into people who are using a different technology. And when they're using that other technology, those people are like, I, don't use this one, religion, use this other one, fill in the blank. Science, Christian nationalism, uh, sports, uh, uh, human kindness, whatever it is, right? So, and it's often in this competition of technologies where we find deeper understanding of, of both of the uh, both of the views and both of the kinds of technologies. And that not only happens in, pu in public and with other people, it happens internally with a lot of us. Like we're not always sure which one of the technologies we're supposed to utilize to engage on a question, right? So some of us were taught, well, r your religion, your faith, especially those, some people from the Christian traditions were taught, that's the primary technology. I mean, that's the first one. Everything else falls under it. It's the first authority in your life and you begin and end there. And then your tradition tells you what parts of your religion you should utilize, whether it's a scripture you should use or your own intuition or the teachings of your community or things that you observe. You know, you, you'll arrange all of that differently. But the argument first is, well, First, your faith, first, your religion, first, your spirituality. Let that be the first technology that drives and let everything else have to earn its right to be at that, at that level. Well, for a lot of us, boy, that just hasn't served very well, right? We're kind of like, look, <laughs> you know, a lot of things my religion does for me, my faith does for me. I take my faith very seriously. I, I, I don't want to live a life without it. I want to work on it, but it doesn't serve everything. It doesn't, it doesn't help all the time. You know, I've been in conversations with people where we're trying to like fix a car or build a garden or figure out a technology. You know, how, how does this thing work? And they'll want to stop in the middle of that because there's a moment of, you know, uncertainty and engage their religion, right? Maybe we should stop and pray about this. And that's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like, not that I'm bothered by it. I just think that's not the time to pull that technology in here, right? <laughs> let's look it up or let's, let's ask somebody like there's another way. The instructions of your religion don't always serve in every possible area. So we end up creating an internal and external hierarchy of all of this. That's one of the things that's going on in our public expressions of religion today is people are trying to figure out, well, if I hold a faith or a religion or an identity, for some of us, you know, we're like, look, killing children with the same weapon over and over and over, at some point, that's not just a public health question. That's actually a moral question. And our morality comes from this idea that we're called to love one. And here you go, right? So now yeah. you're moving down this direction where maybe the use of every gun in the world isn't a religious idea, but at some point it transcends into that space and starts to be affected by it. And when do we move into that area and when don't we? This becomes a really difficult question for us uh, in our society. 
Yeah. And the big question of in America, what does the separation of church and state really mean? I feel like it's thrown around a lot, but maybe we're, we're getting it wrong in some places. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and look, uh, there are a lot of views on that, a lot of really good ones, a lot of them that I think are a little bit uh, obscure. What we can agree on is that the government, whether that be the federal government, the state government, the county government, the government should not establish any religion. In other words, it shouldn't pick a technology, a religious technology, to give preference to or to take away rights from. It should try to stay out of it. Mm-hmm. Don't, let the, don't let the government be the one that's going to dictate what religion you practice. So if we can all agree on that, we shouldn't do that. Then the question becomes, when does that happen? What does it take? Like if the government just said, hey, it's against the law for you to be an evangelical. It's against the law for you to be Catholic or Protestant mm-hmm. or Muslim or Hindu or or you have to have a religion. You have to name one, something like this. We all know, okay, for sure not that. Right. right. But yeah, where it gets and, confusing is like, well, my religion allows me to discriminate against gay people. You're infringing upon my rights you know, the classic, like, I won't make a cake for a gay wedding debate that's gone to courts throughout the country. It's like... Totally. It's a real question. Yeah. Can can a person who runs a private business operate that under their private business with a different set of laws that impact them than, um, than the rest of us because they can claim a religious exemption? Mm-hmm. That's what you have courts for. Decisions are made. This was the big argument in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and all the way into the 1980s with private Christian fundamentalist colleges that said, like Liberty University or Roberts University, that said, you can't have mixed race relationships on this campus. Mm-hmm. Well, it had been legal for people of different races to marry each other since the Loving decision, but these colleges said, well, we have a different set of expectations because of our religion, so you government can't tell us how right. we're going to function, even when we're receiving government funding, even when we're issuing federally acknowledged degrees, we're going to function inside the federal system. You can't tell us that we can <laughs> yeah. have to have, that, that we have to have rules that we have to follow certain rules and laws. That very same thing, the bakers of the cake for gay weddings, and what's called Title IX, which is this big category of things that universities, colleges have to do in order to make equality possible, especially gender equality, Liberty University continues to fight against that because they say that the federal government should not be able to tell them how they're going to function. So there become some real questions. Mm -hmm. Liberty University is wrong on that morally, religiously in my view and uh <laughs> and, and legally uh fortunately that at least that last part has been proved out over and over and over so yes this this question of when does the government step over the line and now is actually supporting or barring some kind of a some kind of religion it's it's a real question yeah um and and we should always be attentive to it. Look, r- religion has been utilized in societies around the world for nearly 10,000 years of recorded human history as having great negative impact on people. 
right? It's um, that uh, Shelley and I just finished watching this uh, show on Hulu uh, that was made about a book called Under the Banner of Heaven, and it's the story of fundamentalist Mormons in the 1980s committing a murder because of their faith in Utah, and. Uh, so it it's a it's a window into one of the religious communities in this country, uh, the fundamentalist uh, Mormon movement, and it gives you a window into thinking about other kinds of religion and how does this fit more classic Mormonism and all. So there's lots of stuff about it. One of the lines in the in this show uh, that we saw last night, one of the detectives said to another detective who is a Mormon but not fundamentalist, he said. Um, Look, your people, while being occasionally, you know, historic by, by being historically occasionally kind, have an allergy to the truth. It was a great way to kind of phrase wow. it, right? Like, um, yeah, sure, y'all uh, occasionally do some really great things, but the story you're choosing to tell about how this all came about—now, that's a whole other story, right? Every technology, every religion, every faith suffers under that same thing, right? It's never sufficient to uh, take in every bit of data, every bit of fact. It's just sort of sort of how how it how it is. That's a reality of every technology. There's just a failure of it. Hypocrisy is built into everything. It's built into you know the founding of our nation, we the people, but not all the people. Mm -hmm. You know, establish uh, uh, liberty. But not really for everyone. Not for so, everyone, yeah. So th these are things that are just part of the human experience. And they're always going to be there. I think sometimes we too easily find the hypocrisy in our own traditions or someone else's and allow us a pass as if or, or uh, cause us to, to flee that, that opinion. As if we could go somewhere and find a hypocrisy-free zone. The question to me is not, can you find a place where there's a lack of hypocrisy? The question is, what does your technology, what does your faith, your religion, your culture, what does it teach you to do when you face that hypocrisy? Because mm -hmm. it's going to come. There's just no doubt uh, about <laughs> about that. It's something that's going to uh, it's going it's going to visit, visit yeah, all. You're going to look in the mirror and realize that you've been preaching one thing and doing another in one particular area of your life and have to reckon with that, apologize or pretend that it doesn't exist like a lot of people prefer to do. I think one of the interesting things is you know, there's a lot of gray area right in the middle about what is too much of your religion in politics, especially for elected officials. Mm -hmm. you know, how much is too much? What's just the right amount? So it gets gray in the middle, but there are extremes, I think, that we can point out and say, well, it's definitely not this. This is too much. And right. I pulled up a, an example from Twitter, and this is a Georgia Republican candidate, Candace Taylor. She's got the bus that says, you know, God, or Jesus, guns, and babies, just yeah. in giant on the... <laughs> And in a recent yeah. video, she said, don't talk to me about separation of church and state. We are the church and we run the state. Yeah. So, so there it is, right? And, and this has been something that we have seen currently in Georgia with this movement of more fundamentalist side of the Baptist and evangelical traditions in Georgia. A lot of people felt that in the upper Northeast in the 1950s and 60s with the Catholic church. 
a lot of combination of local people who are also members of the church and politicians at the federal level that were tied into the church and some people that weren't part of those traditions were like, why are we spending all of our resources protecting the Catholic church? Why, why have these two felt like they've become one in the same in Utah? That's been a real struggle for Mormons because so much of the state is Mormon and Idaho's uh, similar. So much of those states are, are Mormon. And where does the, where does the separation happen? Someone told us in uh, somebody running for office in Oklahoma that on the Republican side of the Oklahoma state, State legislature, all but one of the state legislators is an outspoken Christian person. So at some point you say to yourself, is this thing tipped over and we've lost the distinction between public role and religious identity because the two technologies sit so close together because they, mm -hmm. they, they function with each other. Look, it's a, it's a real question we should keep up all the time. Religious people early on in the foundation of the country were very nervous about this because they were nervous that the state was going to impact their religion. They weren't just yeah. worried that the religion was going to pollute the, the, the state or the government or something. They were also worried the other way because it is a two-way river, this, this impact. It's impacting uh, both sides of, this, uh, of the shore here. Which yeah, I think I totally sure. just mixed up that metaphor there. I'm not sure that there's a two. I'm not sure there's a two-way river. I think there's. <laughs> it's a two-way river. It <laughs> it's a real special thing. You, you've never seen this before, but uh, if you've been in a two-way river, it's really <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right, um, establishing this this idea, right? That it's hard to know when one technology should be interacting with the other. Sometimes it's, you know, when I send text messages to groups, sometimes, and I use an iPhone, and I feel like most of the people, 60, 70, 80% of the people that I text with use an iPhone. But I have lots of beloved people in my life who choose to use a non-iPhone. I'm sure it has a name that's not just non-iPhone. <laughs> no, they, they, they choose to use an Android. So when we send a group text, all of a sudden it changes the text, right? Like you, you can't send certain videos and certain resolutions. It changes the little thing from blue to green. And if any of you are Android users, you've, you suffer under a regular onslaught of people being bothered by the fact that, you know, you're <laughs> not like them. And, 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 and sometimes you, you can't tolerate it anymore. You just give in and buy an iPhone. But those mixed technologies is the analogy I'm going for here that's what some people feel like when religion and politics or religion technologies and civic technologies start to merge, right? That's kind of what I feel like sometimes when I watch a football game, which I don't watch much anymore, and people uh, perform their job admirably and score a touchdown and then invoke a religious narrative or after the football game at high schools in Texas, coaches go out and tell students to engage their religion, right? That kind of function and people feel like, oh, that's just mixing these things up in a way that doesn't feel very, uh, that doesn't feel very good. So it's a real struggle for us. And if you've struggled with your own faith and religion and how it's supposed to play out, um, it, it, we, we hear you. It's, it's hard. And Dan, you also have a clip of someone who similar to the Georgia candidate who, you know, her campaign is for public office is Jesus, babies and guns, <laughs> 
which, you know, after the Uvalde shooting is just more offensive, somehow became more offensive than it, it was previously. Just a reminder about how unbelievable this is um, to, to some of us, to some of our sensibilities. I know yeah. for some people, it's not unbelievable at all. They mm-hmm. see it coming and despise it or love it. And it's what they, it's the, the views that they hold. But someone like me, it's just hard to believe. But then there's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, there has been a lot of push about Christian nationalism because Christian nationalism is a particular form. I would even suggest it's its own technology. It's its own narrative to carry meaning and tell people how to engage in the world and create an overall story. Mm -hmm. It's suggesting a way that we're supposed to be involved in our society, right? And its work is trying to say America is fundamentally and foundationally and ever will be established for the protection of the Christian religion. It was founded by Christians as a safe place for people to practice their religion without interference. The government needs to organize itself primarily around a Christian narrative. You can include Judaism in there because Christianity includes Judaism. So it's a Judeo-Christian nation. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to drive the future of this country because that's what drove the founding of this country. Therefore, being Christian and loving your country are not opposite of each other. And there's no problem with putting those two things together in this thing called Christian nationalism. You might think I'm just being overly reductionistic about it. Um, and that politicians don't talk like this. You're about to see that I was not being overly reductionistic about it. I was actually complicating what you're about to hear from Marjorie Taylor Greene, who makes this makes this very argument. Now, I will suggest that's a wrong reading of our history, but that's the privilege of history. People get to read it in many different ways. Right? That's <laughs> and sort you of how get to goes. skip over key points if you want to. Feel free. You don't have, I mean, look, you can't include, this is, this is the work of history, whether it's American history, world history, your own history, whatever history you've got, you're not telling everything. Hey, honey, how was your day? What happened on December 5th, 1944? What was the founding of the country? Any of those questions suffer under the same struggle. You're not going to say everything. So you're going to pick some things, mm-hmm. the things that's what you should do. It's what reasonable people do. It's, it's how you do history. You pick some things, not everything. So what happens when people pick these things uh, <laughs> and, and the story goes? So here's, here's Marjorie Taylor Greene with her, her selection of the things that should be picked. You see, nationalism is a good thing. It's where all Americans should be. We should be wanting America first. We should be wanting our tax dollars, our focus, our legislation, our bills, and our leadership focused on our nation. We should be proud of nationalism, and we should be proud of an America first nationalism. And then lastly, we should be most proud of Christianity. So if Christian nationalism is something to be scared of, they're lying to you. And they're lying to you on purpose because that is exactly the temperature change that is happening in America today, and they can't control it. They can't control it, and that's what terrifies them the most. Okay. Well, here's the thing. That's not what terrifies us the most, (laughs) is that we can't control it. Uh, What terrifies me about it is a couple of things. One, 
And Rob does a great job taking this uh, apart and putting it back together. So he's got an eight minute video that we're des is designed for you to share with others. So please do. And you can, you can see that over on the YouTube channel uh, later today. But look, the use of an ism is almost always designed in the English language to show an extreme or an unattractive feature of something. Just check your own language sometime when you talk about an ism, right? <laughs> uh, isms, uh, communism, it seems socialism, capitalism. I isms are, are designed, because we can say, look, we, we want to have a capitalistic society, but capitalism, boy, that starts to feel like something else, or I'm a Calvinist, but Calvinism is something different. So the, the idea that caring about your nation that I love my country, I want to support my country, I think our country is an important thing, I think living with an identity inside of both a locality, a, a local locality, and a national account, that's important, and I want to support other people, and we're part of something here as a nation, is different than nationalism, okay? So the idea, and I know that what Marjorie Taylor Greene is trying to say, because she uses lots of words to do this, is you can love your country, it's safe, it's okay to love your country. No one's saying don't love your country. No one's even arguing about should we have an America first or not an America first. Personally, I think the function of any country is not fundamentally to serve itself. The primary function of a nation is to serve its citizens in a global context. We, look, we should not exist as human beings to see ourselves in service of our country. We should see ourselves in service of one another, of the planet, and of all things that are good from the vantage point of our country. Mm -hmm. A little side note on that. Same thing with religion. If you think you exist in order to support your religious identity, even if you've been taught that your primary purpose for existing is to glorify God, well, if you're from the Christian tradition, someone's misled you on that. Mm -hmm. The Christian tradition is very clear. God loves the world. And if you're going to love God, then you're also going to love your neighbor. You're going to love your enemy. You're going to love yourself. That the primary function is not about preserving your religion and certainly isn't having to preserve God. From the Christian tradition, God doesn't need you to defend God. God <laughs> yeah. God's not vulnerable to something. That's just not how it goes. Okay, so religion should not exist so that you serve it. Our country should not exist so that our people fundamentally exist as fodder for the extension of our country. That's just like rule one and missing the point. Yeah. And just the to hop on your, country, yes, your tangent, Christian nationalism is directly against Christianity. The whole... <laughs> point of Jesus was to say the first shall be last the last shall be first be a servant love your neighbor and Christian nationalism says no America first we're going to shut the doors we're going to lock the gates Boom. screw oh, everybody else I just, 
I just don't see how you make it make sense. It, it is a little stunning. I guess if your Christianity teaches you that what Christianity wants you to do is to consider the faithful first, that what Christianity exists for is to preserve the faithful. And a lot of people have been taught that, that there's they're taught that your religion is this hierarchy of importance of human beings. Mm-hmm. Love the brothers first. Love the love the family of God first. Then, let then that if you school, have a little left over, maybe help the world. Be generous, right? <laughs> so one's an obligation, loving the faithful. The other is generosity. And one of the things, to be preachy for a minute from my Christian tradition, that Jesus teaches is you have to invert that. As you say, the first shall be last and the last mm-hmm. shall be first. If you don't care about the least of these, if you don't care about the others, if, 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 you, if that's not your perspective and you think it's really about you, well, let me tell you a parable, he says. There <laughs> yeah. were these 99, there were these 100 sheep and one of them got lost. And, this, and just over and over and over trying to push this notion that there's a kingdom of Israel in his day and there was a kingdom of Rome. And then Jesus said, but here's the great news. There's actually something that encompasses all of that. Mm-hmm. We'll call it the kingdom of God. That's what you should care about, that there's no distinction between the thises and the that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a notion that a lot of us struggle with. Like, okay, well, how do we do that? Do we put more emphasis on some people than others? Is there time? Does God have a preferential care for the poor over the wealthy? So how do we handle right? So th- then you then you talk about it, right? Yeah, but the yeah. notion is, let's work this out with this idea that you don't actually pick some people over other people. So I think what Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing is she's reflecting a version of America that says we exist first and foremost for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you as a citizen, your job as a citizen is fundamentally to serve the country. It gets really confusing, right? <laughs> it, is this country, does this country exist as a structure and a function for me to serve it? I mean, what, what freedom loving person says something like that, right? It just, <laughs> and then Christianity, that it exists for our, our benefit or, or that somehow God's in competition with humanity and first I need to serve God and oh, then I can serve you. God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what, how do you read the Jewish or Christian scriptures or traditions and end up with a God who feels jealous of humanity. <laughs> now, if you've got some verse in your head that someone told you, I am a jealous God and so on and so on. Uh, we can talk about that one later about how the use <laughs> of the anthropomorphic use of jealousy in that sense was your own passions are burning for the wrong things. And what you should be burning for is the justice of all things for all people. And so if there's some sort of jealousy in there, it's not because God feels insecure that someone's getting all of God's attention, which is what a lot of people think, right? So they think like a a nation first and a God first notion, both fundamentally misunderstand the teachings of Christianity and the notion of America. Yeah. And it's not complicated teachings either. It's like Jesus (laughs) says it. What's yeah. the most important commandment? He just he just tells us. Yeah. 
Love God, love God, and love your love neighbor as yourself. <laughs> and the and the second is like it. He goes. I mean, he's like the, the the two go together because what he was pushing on in that day was the very same thing we're pushing on because it's the human impulse of the technology of religion to create a hierarchy. Uh-huh. And Jesus is like, no. I, here's what I want to do. I want to flip it. I wrote a book called Flipped about all this. I want to flip that around, that thing that you think sits like this, and I want to flip it like this, right? Okay, so that's from the Christian tradition. Every other religion has the same practices going on. I promise you. They they talk about it in different ways, but they all do it. We did a whole video on this. Our website is a bunch of information about this. Like, so All of this, by the way, is what we call the common good. Right, that all people do better when all people do better. That kind of idea. That it's really, you know, it's the all. It's it's a, it's a philosophical religious notion of allism that just include everybody, and it sits as the absolute antithesis to first anything. Mm-hmm. America first, Christianity first, religion first, me first, me first. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, when I first got into Christianity, there was a, a youth speaker that I spent a bunch of time around. He was sort of around here. And he used to have this saying uh, that, you know, it really works well when you're talking to older teenagers and young adults because you're trying, in that age of life, you're trying to figure out how you put any of this stuff together. You know, you just feel all the pressures and you're trying to put it together. And he had this little saying where he'd say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> I've heard That's that. Like, it's, yeah. it's clever, right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Sort of assuming that everybody agreed what the main thing was. <laughs> what, what, what I realized in it, because I came from outside the Christian tradition into all this, I'm like, well, I think the main thing is that we're not including all the people that we're leaving out because those are all my family and friends and all these other people. That's not the main thing. They're like, no, 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 no. The main thing is, and then we would have theological arguments about what the main thing is. <laughs> so, okay, if the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, fair enough. What again is the main thing? And there <laughs> the question uh, really, really gets itself going. Yeah. My own view is that in the Christianity that I want to proclaim and I want to push and, and I hope other people will feel uh, invited into is that we should live and exist as a benefit and blessing to all the world. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of phrasing works. That all of us are a, should be benefiting and blessing for religious language, common gooding in popular language, for the entire world. That there is no boundary that we can see that determines who's on the one side versus the other side. Now, yeah. this is extremely hard for, the, for human beings. We just can't care about everything equally. And I think religion, some when it, when it's done well, can give us a really good technology for handling that. Yeah, that some of us like different parts of our body that do different things, can care about some things, and other people can care about others. But we all feel like we're in this thing together. There's there's some ways to do this that that, that religion technologies have figured out. Right. Are we going to think- end up in a world without religion? Not in our lifetimes. So we better figure this thing out. Yeah, because it's not going away. Yeah, and I think when it comes to religion and politics, I think a good rubric or litmus test is, am I putting pieces back together or am I breaking things? Am I making this world more whole and safer for kids and parents and moms and 
the environment or am I helping in the destruction? And I think, you know, things like there's 18 states that are using religion as an excuse to target trans kids right now. And if your religion is doing that, like picking on the most marginalized and statistically like most bullied and highest suicide rate, you're picking on the least of these with your religion. That's bringing religion into politics the wrong way. But if your religion is compelling you to make the world safer for kids in schools, I think that's, that's a way we can start to think about how you use your religion. Boy, that is, that is a great litmus test. You know, if other people not in your religion don't think your religion is doing a good thing, that's a, <laughs> that's a thing you should check, right? Yeah. Are people glad that you do what you do? I heard someone say, you know, pick your date. And everyone can do this. 30 years ago, 50 years ago, something like that. And and if you went back 50 years, people would be saying the same thing about 50 years ago. So fair enough. But 50 years ago, the question for a lot of religious people was, hey, I think non-believers don't believe our religion. But now the question is, I think non-believers think we don't believe our religion. <laughs> right? Yeah. The, the question is like, you're the people who are saying these these things. It doesn't, and I'm not talking about just general hypocrisy, right? Already went over that ad nauseum. That sure, that's going to happen. No mm-hmm. one's going to live up to it all the time. You can always find that fault. But when someone not a part of your religion says, "I don't really understand why," by you saying you hold these views, you also hold these views. Mm-hmm. Now, for a lot of people, they're not, they don't feel like they're caught in hypocrisy. They feel like it's outsiders tru- truly don't understand them and they're persecuting them, yeah. right? Because a lot of people are not, hip- especially in the Christian tradition, they're not hypocrites about this stuff. Mm-hmm. They just believe two things simultaneously and can't figure out how to reconcile them. So I've heard so many people say to me when you bring up things like this, like, well, of course we shouldn't be hard on these on these kids or on these uh, people that are transgender or gay or fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be, but the Bible but. says, right. And so I hold these two things. I have these two authorities and I know uh, it's hard for some, but they just have to kind of come around to it. You know, like when you do wrong, that's sort of how it goes. Mm-hmm. So, so, that's not hypocrisy in the same sense, right? That's cognitive dissonance. That's feeling like I'm holding two ideas that I can't put together, so I'm going to let one override the other. Yeah. That, that's, what's, that's what's going on. And look, for any of us in our religion, if we're going to use our religion to fuel our public engagement, one of the great questions is to ask other people that don't adhere to our religion, do you think that the way I'm organizing this, thinking about this, functioning in this, do you think this is a good idea? (laughs) Yeah. Because even though the Christian tradition loves this phrase and it's often been identified with the Christian tradition, most other religions have the same idea built into it. And that is that your religion should bring good news. Mm -hmm. Right. That's sort of the, that's the 
root of the English word, the gospel, the, the good news is brought. Right. People really want your, like they want to be happy that you're religious, that your religion does good things in the world, <laughs> that they should yeah. exist. You know, we should live a life where persecution is not our goal. We should live a life where people are like, <laughs> man, I think what you all are up to is really great. I mean, it's not my thing. I kind of wish it was. Yeah. But it's just not the thing that I do or believe. But boy, I, yeah, the I question kind of, of like, is of, this good know. news or to an outsider, does this look like love to you? I think, <laughs> I think that would be helpful if it line. weren't for this like deeply rooted to get a little theological on the faith day. There it comes go. back to this weird idea of what God and love mean in the Christian tradition because yeah. we run into these things where you read a passage and you say, well, you know, sometimes love is speaking the truth and you're making someone feel really bad about who they are as a person because that's how you love someone. So we have this really mixed up idea of what love is and should be. And so we extrapolate that to a lot of times love feels like abuse. And that's where you get into situations where the Southern Baptist convention is caught covering up sexual abuse at the highest levels because the mission comes first and sometimes you know God works in mysterious ways and you mm-hmm. know, all these mm-hmm. theological coverings for things that do not look like love to anybody else. Yeah, boy, that there it is because when someone says I want to I want my faith to match my vision of God, who doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. Seems like that would be the point act, live godly the way that you think God would. If you believe that ultimately God is going to destroy or eternally punish people who disagree with the truth. Yeah. <laughs> see where I'm going with this? Eternally conscious, <laughs> consciously torment people. Then of course it's okay for you to be opposed to those people. You're just yeah. doing now what God is going to do in the future. I mean, you boil it right down and this is what people think. And if they think God is going to punish me to get me to do right, then I will punish other people to get them to do right. Mm -hmm. If God uses violence to overcome his opposition, then of course we're justified in using violence. Now, God's careful, so we should be careful. God has justifiable reasons for God's war against fill in the blank. Therefore, we should create some just war theory. This is where it all roots. Mm -hmm. So someone listening to this, who's not in the Christian tradition and maybe is opposed to it would say, so what are you jokers doing in the Christian tradition, right? (laughs) And the Jewish traditions that, that have this as their narrative. I will suggest to you that what you see in the Old Testament, New Testament, or Jewish scriptures and Christian scriptures, what you see there is a debate and a dialogue of people saying, God punishes and other people saying, no, God doesn't. Mm -hmm. So what you have are these stories that are then told about what God does in one side, often the religious identity, the priests and the leaders and the kings on one side and the prophets on the other. And the prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Jewish scriptures and Christian scriptures say things like, well, you want to go down that road of just slaughtering people and creating vengeance? 
go ahead. But you know what it's going to lead to? The destruction of all things, because what God asks you for is mercy and not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Very famous passage, gets kicked around a lot. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. That is a direct critique of this punishing God narrative that the religious community of the Israelites and the the Jewish people of Judaism in in first temple Israel gets a little complicated, but that that argument that they're having within that tradition, you get to the new Testament and the same thing happens. You get these religious leaders, these Kings, these priests, they're talking about using violence. And then a prophet Jesus who says, you can try to kill your way out of all this. You can try to justify, you can drag the sinner woman into the middle of the, of the street. But I'm telling you, how about those of you without any sin cast that first stone or you can execute me and you're just going to be showing what emptiness there is because you're killing the very one of God. You're not preserving anything for God. Mm-hmm. The, and then the apostles go on with the same storyline exclusions happening all over the place in the early days of early Christianity. And Paul, a prophet, apostle, another word for that, you know, takes on different, different phrases uh, at different times in the Christian tradition. They call them apostles. So then these apostles are going around saying like, stop separating people. <laughs> stop creating these categories of division. Mm-hmm. And then other people are like, well, for the, the first thing we need to do is, is separate out the holy from the unholy. That's not a 20th century or 19th century, 18th century idea. That was a first century idea. And the early Christians were like, no, the first (laughs) thing you need to do is love one another unconditionally. That's what you need to do. So, yeah, so there is a human drama going on all the way through. So people who are like, and I get it. If you don't know your way around the Bible, it gets super complicated. Yes, it took. A lot, it takes a lot of people a long time. <laughs> it took me a long time to be like, what are these prophets? I remember when I was first reading about the prophets, I'm like, I don't understand. Cause I didn't grow up in religion. So nobody had told me how to organize the old Testament. And I'm like, I feel like I'm reading stories from two different perspectives. Cause if you don't know this, that that's happening, you know, you got all these books in the old Testament, you know, 40 of them. Some, and, and you've got people who are, you have the same stories being told from two different perspectives. And then the prophets come and bring a third perspective on it. So what you have is actually this library of dialogue and discussion about what do we do about violence, religion, God, and humanity. And you have different notions being put forward and some that are rising to the surface. So to break it down overly simplistically, you have competition between the religious and kingly functions with the prophetic function. That same thing goes on. That's why Jesus says, I come in the path of the prophets because I'm condemning and critiquing this other power structure that uses the purpose of religion is religion. The purpose of humanity is to serve God and to make all people fall into alignment with that. And he says, the purpose of this is that you will love one another. Right. The, the whole, <laughs> I mean, it gets overly simplistic and, and uh, until you, you know, walk around this tree for the 30th time and say, oh, the 
the thing that Jesus says, how will you know if you're living in my way, if you're my disciples, what's the thing you're going to know? It's not going to be, are you more pure? It's not going to be, are you the most? What's it going to be in the Christian tradition? Well, it's going to be, do you love one another? Do people see that that's the sign? The, The only fruit on this tree is, do you actually love one another? So then a bunch of these followers spend a whole lot of time trying to say, what's love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is generous. Love doesn't self-serve. All these kinds of things that Christian nationalism, America first, all of this says, no, no, no. That's all (laughs) soft and weak. That's not what it's about. So it's the same argument that the Jewish community and the Israelites were having in the First Testament that the Gospels have with Jesus and the leaders and that the New Testament, we're doing the same thing because that's how it goes, mm-hmm. right? And it's not like something's broken. So I hear people, okay, I'm really right now, but I hear people say things like this. How come How come I read the Bible and I don't see people doing the same things, you know, that uh, that, that faith seems so good and pure back then. How come we're not doing that now? We actually are doing exactly that now. It wasn't <laughs> clean and pure. People didn't even know which way to look. They were really struggling trying to figure all of this out. That's what you see throughout the gospels. That's how you have Peter, the one closest to Jesus in relationship and in the story, pulls out a sword and tries to hit the face of one of the people arresting Jesus. And then Jesus says, put the sword away. If you're gonna live by that sword, you're gonna die by that sword. It's nonsense, Mm -hmm. be done with it. So th- these are the narratives, right? That that are, are all the way through. I'm not saying that somebody, ha- in order to have an ethic of nonviolence and an ethic of inclusion, has to use the Bible. Totally, you don't. Look, there were people in the New Testament and the Old Testament who were living out that ethic of inclusion before those very things that are being described were written down in the Bible. So... No, you don't need the Bible. No, you don't need religion to pursue this. But if you have a Bible and it's important to you and it's the thing that you're engaged in, make sure that's what you're reading in it because you you can't take the biblical narratives and pull out a bunch of little pull quotes to create yourself a whole other story. Now, here's Mm -hmm. what's bizarre. I watch a lot of videos of people saying stuff about progressive Christians like all of us and they think (laughs) that's what we're doing. Yeah. They say it all the time. Oh, like, they just pick people. and choose, but they you need to just preach the Bible. And to that, I want to say this. Touche. We all do pick and choose. We can't pick everything and describe everything all the time. But there is a storyline running through this entire library of the Bible. And that storyline is going one particular direction toward inclusion and nonviolence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just start with the Garden of Eden in Genesis where there's like, get out of the garden all the way through to the new garden in Revelation where everyone is included. That's yeah. the trajectory, right? That's that's where it's going. You're telling a story that's choosing and picking as I am, but you're choosing a, choosing and picking in a way that's telling a different story. You're onto something else. Yeah. Well, so, so what's the role of religion in politics? It needs to be that it serves all people. And the first thing it needs to do is not make itself the point. Yeah. So if you have a religion that is seeing the civic engagement as the mechanism by which you're going to accomplish your own goals. Yeah, and if your religion in politics is at the detriment of other people's religion, you might be doing it wrong as well. 
Like if you're <laughs> if you're putting your religion onto other people, demanding that they behave like you do because of your religion, you're missing the point too. Boy, so important. Look, religion should move us toward human flourishing, which does not need our religion to exist. That our religion should move us to care about those things. Mm -hmm. It should be a technology we use to move us closer to human love, care, and flourishing. That's what it ought to do. If you think, well, there's no other way for someone to even have an ethic of human flourishing if not for <laughs> my, my religion. You just need to meet a few more people because you're going <laughs> to find out that, that's just, that not yeah. everyone roots their understanding of human flourishing in the technology that compels them toward it. Mm -hmm. That they're actually two different things. It's a little hard to know sometimes because they feel like they come together and they, they come to you in one, one, you know, one package as if it's one thing. But as you grow and you develop and you experience more and more things, you begin to understand, oh, I see. There's something that just exists that human beings just see and love and care for one another. It's just built into our biology. And what our religion ought to do is to protect that impulse at all times and to drive out the other impulses that we develop over time yeah. that would that would harm it. So look, I, I, there was this great phrase that somebody put up the other day, which is kind of, you know, sometimes there's wisdom in a, in a little cheap shot and sometimes they're just a cheap shot. But one of them was, um, Something like, if you need your religion to convince you not to be a bad person, you're already a bad person, <laughs> right? So the, the point being like, hey, like, really? You, the rest of us could come up like, we don't need, the, and I think, no, I think their, their phrase was, if, if you need a religion that threatens you with eternal punishment for you not to be a bad person, then you're already a bad person. So they were not just critiquing religion, they were critiquing the idea that you yeah. need a, a religion that punishes you to keep you from doing bad things. Right. Um, it, it just doesn't work. Look, punishment narratives we know now in humanity don't work. If you have any belief in God at all, you have to assume God's been aware of that for a very long time, <laughs> right? That, that punishment doesn't lead to change. In fact, in the New Testament, this is a great little line that got me into Christianity, actually. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Yeah. yeah Not it's God's an invitation. Punishment. Yes. Yeah. It's a welcome. Mm -hmm. All right. So what's the role of religion in our civic life? Oh, well, it's complicated, but it's not impossible to figure out. I do think it's more like how the human being learns to walk bipedally on two feet takes, you know, I think it's 26 bones in the human foot, just in the foot. Like if you're into, you know, people that are into bones and stuff, they're like, you know, I have more bones in your foot than you do in the rest of your body. <laughs> uh, they always tell, except, except your hand, like your, your feet and your hands. Well, it's because your hands do a bunch of fine motor skills and your feet are actually moving all the time to keep you upright. Mm -hmm. And so are your knees and so is your equilibrium and so is your eyes and so is the, you know, the balance inside your ears, right. like all of this stuff keeps you upright. So when we say, well, it's, you're going to just kind of walk this path. 
It's a beautiful metaphor, especially when we understand how complicated it is. You're going to have to have a lot of bones moving in each foot, and you're going to have to have a lot of equilibrium to stay up. And if any of us have ever had trouble walking, standing, and you have to relearn to walk, it's really difficult. You begin to understand how complex the human neural patterns are that we could figure this stuff out just sort of by watching and doing as little toddlers that we started to toddle. Well, that's how religion and society have to be. It's really hard. And some of us have had some set of conditions put on us from our religion or from our, from our, our, our civic side that have given us some kind of an impediment where it's really hard for us to figure out how to walk. And so mm -hmm. we're really working hard here to figure out how to stay upright and to stay balanced. Or we get a little older and all of a sudden you're like, I almost fell down those stairs. <laughs> I mean, I, I live in the same house I've lived in for 22 years. The other day I was walking down the stairs and I blamed it on COVID, but it might be more than that. I was like, I almost missed that step walking down. Like how in the world <laughs> did I miss that step? You ever have this other experience where you're, you're walking along uh, like on a sidewalk or something where there's some steps and you think there's going to be a step there, but like you don't even <laughs> you know just you land thought there was going to be a step. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you didn't even know you thought that you just stepped and your body sort of jerked and yeah. you're like, wow, I must like somewhere there's a knowledge. There's, there's a whole system running that's moving my leg and my foot and my balance. I don't even know that that's happening mm -hmm. or Worse yet, you didn't see a step coming and you stepped as if you weren't... You didn't even know that you were making all of these little accommodations right. to, to walk. Well, that's what happens when these technologies come together of religion and politics, or religion and civic life especially. We don't even know how sophisticated we are at navigating those until we almost fall down the stairs, have a little mm -hmm. trouble walking, miss a step, think there was a step there. And we sort of look around and think, did anybody see that? Because you know, either I'm embarrassed or that was hilarious. Somebody should have seen that. Yeah, that, That's what's happening to a lot of us all the time, right? We watch a Marjorie Taylor Greene say those things. We watch insurrectionists attack the Capitol. We watch religious leaders put flags in their churches. And it's like, we're slipping down these stairs or we're missing. And we're like, okay, what's going on here? And, you know, um, the, the escalator that I was standing on just turned into steps because it stopped moving. And now I have to walk up them and not just standing. Like just a lot of these things going on that make life confusing for this. But we're human beings that can navigate this complexity. Mm -hmm. And if we make it too simple, and there's a lot of ways to bail out and make this thing simple, right? Religion is useless. Religion is dumb. Religion dominates. Religion has to be everything. All of those. Look, look. and whatever you got to do to get through the day, fair enough. Like I'm not trying to tell somebody that they need to make religion more important or less important or any of the rest of it. Because who knows what we all need at, at any given time. We're probably the least, you know, uh, 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 aware people of everything that we need all the time. So we should check it with other people and follow our intuitions and then check all the time and kind of get good mm -hmm. at it and start learning to walk this walk um, in some new ways and not take it lightly and think, oh, we've just, we've just got it because the terrain and the conditions are changing, are changing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And there's technologies we need to unlearn and new technologies we need to learn to, I think a lot of Christian leaders, uh, if they're not already in the kind of leaning right mm. and mm. politically active, are afraid of mm. making a misstep. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. 
And so there's just a lot of silence, even from yeah. quote unquote more progressive Christians. They're afraid to engage politics because they've seen it done poorly. But I think that's that's a bummer too. Like <laughs> if you're sitting on the sidelines, you're letting others lead the narrative and usually it's not in healthy ways. Yeah. <laughs> that's isn't that the truth? Uh look, because because this stuff is going on and uh some and people are doing it all the time. I I know it well. There is a very sophisticated system of integration of conservative religion mm -hmm. into conservative politics that sort of has an amplifying effect on the conservatism. Yeah. It's really a problem mm -hmm. uh, from, from my vantage point. And I think demonstrably from outcomes in our, in our country, it, it reinforces, it reinforces the, the, the detriment. So we have to ask ourselves, well, from where do we draw our ethics and all the rest? And, and look, it's not easy. I, I disagree with most people on the religious right about most things. And they're not wrong about everything. They have a point to make on some things that people like me just have a very hard time seeing. And without their contribution, I wouldn't see it. To hold that, both of those realities, is really hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to be like, I could not disagree with you more on your conclusions and the way you're framing this. But there is a point in there that I think kind of matters. Can mm -hmm. we just pull that one out? Like, I, I refuse to use the phrase, to positively use the phrase, throwing babies out with bathwater. I, I just think we should never, ever use child harm as an analogy. <laughs> let's not so, be throwing babies anywhere. Let's just stop with the, we, we've had drains for a long time. Ain't no one throwing out bathwater anymore. <laughs> and can we not invoke child harm? But the notion of, let's not get rid of the thing... Sometimes people have a really good point to make that then leads to a lot of other bad conclusions. I mean, if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, we're a daily example of that, right? <laughs> so uh, that's something you, re you really have to struggle with, right? Case in point, I, I totally disagree with conservatives who want to argue that life begins at conception. I think that that conclusion is wrong at every level. But the question they're raising is, at what point and under what set of criteria do we determine that cellular life should be considered personhood? Mm -hmm. Where is that line? Yeah, that's a question we need to be talking about and not afraid of. Absolutely. And if you are, as I am, 100% supportive of a woman's right to choose for her own safety at any point in the pregnancy and should be able to determine up to X number of weeks, I think the date should be somewhere between 15 and 19 weeks that uh, personhood is not yet granted to uh, an embryo or a fetus. If, whether you're where I am or you're somewhere else on that spectrum, if you're not taking seriously the question that we have a moral obligation to ask ourselves, when does life become personhood? It's a real question because that, that notion of personhood is something that we have struggled with in our world and certainly in our society for a very long time. Some people were considered two thirds of a person and we find that to be outrageous. 
So when I talk to life begins at conception people and they say to me, how you can think it was bad to say that two the, uh, an African descended person is two thirds of, of a person in the United States constitution. And yet you don't want to grant personhood to an, to an embryo at, you know, five days, I guess it'd be a zygote at five days. I don't understand how you can hold that opinion rather than just saying, we don't have to start personhood at conception. So you have nothing to say is to actually try to engage that question. Right. And, and that's not to soften it up or confuse it with something else. And I know some people have said to me, like, if you start talking about when does personhood begin, then you're really missing the whole point. Well, I don't think it's missing the point. I don't think it's the other point, but I think we have to have that conversation. The only yeah. people who talk about that, that I know of are people who take seriously the question of when does personhood begin versus life. Okay. So that kind of thing, right? How much of that is informed by our, by our religious technologies? Some, how much by science, mm -hmm. some, how much by sort of an ethic we're having to create in the time a lot. So, th so this is, this is what we have to do, right? Is to engage in these kinds of issues that religion and civic life, religion and politics bring to the foreground for us. And it can be just downright exhausting, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just you know, look, if you've put up with this conversation for an hour and 12 minutes, <laughs> you know that, uh, you know, it's a lot. Uh, and some of this stuff, you're like, oh, I thought about that a hundred times and others of it, like, I don't even know what to think about that no notion and idea that other people think mm -hmm. about a lot, you know, didn't, never considered personhood versus life. Well, it's a, it's a real question. Yeah. Go watch a bunch of YouTube videos of people that want to tell progressives why they're wrong about, you know, uh, pro-choice arguments. They'll tell you that argument. And we're going to have some people on this, this podcast, in fact, that, uh, address that issue of personhood very, very directly because it's, and it's a contribution brought to my life by people that I totally disagree with, mm -hmm. but I'm grateful that they brought this one because yeah. it's, it's important and I'm glad that they, up, that, that they uphold it. Yeah. The ability to listen and actually receive criticism of your own argu arguments and worldview, I think is so important to hold your beliefs humbly and not too preciously, not too defensively. It's hard to do, but yeah, yeah. You know that my 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 friend who used, who works in uh, addiction therapies and stuff, especially in the criminal justice system, said, you know, the thing that I keep saying to all the people I work with, whether they're inmates or those who work with inmates, is the truth is your friend. Yeah, you don't need to be afraid of her. Spend a little time with her. Mm. She's your friend. That's an that, that like shifting it from is it true or not true and what is truth and, you know, ultimate truth and, you know, absolute of, truth, a, yeah. absolute truth. I actually <laughs> forgot the phrase from it. Absolute <laughs> truth. And heard that in a while. Oh, uh, I was so things. nervous growing up that I, I couldn't find it. You know, how do you know? No. It was like an existential angst constantly. Totally. Finding and, the absolute and, truth. And, and some of it's, it's a developmental stage. Like that's, you know, absolutism is a stage we go through. It's, it's, it's important. It's a, it's a life development stage. Don't, you know, we shouldn't look down on it. We also should recognize in my view that it's a life development stage and don't get stuck there. Uh, you know, it, because yeah. what, and so, you know, what my friend Tom did is he shifted this language for, for me from truth being this abstract to some anthropomorphic narrative of treat it like a friend. 
You don't agree with your friend on everything. You don't even like your friend all the time. Yeah, that's truth. <laughs> truth is kind of like that, you know. Uh, yeah. But but know that you know truth. Truth has your best has your best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. That stuff starts getting really interesting, right? And it's and truth isn't here to harm you. In fact, the truth will set you free. All this kind of stuff right. uh, is a, is a way to think about this. All right. Anything in the chat that we need to be? Um, I mean, there's things I want to address, but it'll take another hour. Uh, if, Fair enough. If you're wondering if you might be a Christian nationalist uh, and you find yourself defending the Native American genocide, just going to go out on a limb. You might be a Christian nationalist. Wow, um, that's a great notion to put together. Remember, who was that comedian that used to have that? Um, you might be a redneck. Oh, yeah. if, Jeff Foxworthy. Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> That little yeah, framing, might. like you might be a this if that, uh, that's that's pretty clever. Um, <laughs> what if you could do that in a gentle way with more serious topics? Yeah. Like, yeah, if you find that's yourself. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah you might want to turn around. You might, might want to reconsider. Religion is, uh, you can blame religion for a lot of things that it is, that it is participated in, but it's rarely the sole driver. And, you can blame certain religions for their detrimental impact on humanity, but it's rarely preserved to just any one religion. There are extremists, as Tracy says, there's fan- fanatics inside of all traditions. Um, nearly every tradition that I know of has movements that wants to rid it of the less righteous and pure. Mm-hmm. Um, they really carry something in common. Uh, and so, yeah, that it, it is, and I think it's part of the, the human condition. Therefore it impacts all human technologies. There is no human technology that doesn't, isn't susceptible to power and right. pain and all. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to excuse genocides that the American Christian tradition has pushed down the throats of so many people. It's just to acknowledge that we as human beings use those tools mm-hmm. for those purposes. Yeah. Well, thanks to everyone in the chat, though. Uh, thanks for sticking around. And yeah, and thanks for coming over to the to the YouTube channel if that's where you are. Yeah. Uh, there's a subscribe button there. See that? You don't yet know what magical things happen in your life when you click that button. Uh, <laughs> but just go ahead and give it a try, and then watch your life over the next 48 hours. So that seed of blessing. It's actually (laughs) magical, the things that will happen to you. Uh, You just, it's, it's glories upon glory. Mm -hmm. So I would uh, encourage you to, you know, slide that little uh, finger up to that spot or move that mouse, whatever you do and give it a click or a boop or a bop. All these people that do YouTube videos, you know, they're like teach people how to do YouTube videos. Um, They always come up with these little phrases that they say about that that subscribe button. Yeah, you can smash it, you can boop it. Yeah, you just all these all these things. And <laughs> some people are like, hey, I really need you to do that. It really helps. And other people do like, you know, we just did there, like, oh, there's some little mad, you know, kind of making fun of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but still like seriously, really do click that button. <laughs> like 
Look, you're still watching right now. You're one of us. Just just admit it. Uh, it, it, it. It doesn't make you part of the cult or anything, but it actually, once we hit a thousand, it makes a difference uh, for us. And the fact that we're not at a thousand yet is a daily torment to me. So just on, a, just on a personal level for a guy, a thing you don't care about that somebody else cares. Like there's nothing that says friendship or love more than doing something that you don't care about with and for someone because they care about it that's that's like no greater love no greater love <laughs> as anyone than this that you click the subscribe button for somebody else because it means a lot to them yeah so do yeah. it for doug yeah <laughs> <laughs> like you're literally 38 more of you just do it please yeah. just get this burden <laughs> off my back uh all right. Uh, good. We will. Uh, I think we're on tomorrow with the astrophysicist Paul Wallace in the morning, and then we're on tomorrow night with a shared watch event of the insurrection because some of us need to process that stuff live. So if you're an extrovert like some of us, join us tomorrow night. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern time that we're going to be live. 7:45 actually. We'll we'll kick it off 7:45 p.m. Eastern time for the insurrection hearing watch experience. And if you're uh, you know, it's going to be with us tomorrow morning early. We'll be on with astrophysicist Paul Wallace and talk about the sky and planets and birds. Sounds good. All right. Bye, everybody.